The Bible says parents of a disobedient son are to take that son to the elders of the city and have them be stoned. How does this reconcile with God as love? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Seitz. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. The modern church wants to focus on the idea that God is love. But there's commandments in the Old Testament that certainly don't sound very loving. Like an example would be Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother and who, when they have chastened him, will not heed them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city, to the gate of his city. And they shall say to the elders of his city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall put away the evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. When we think of the idea that a parent putting their child to death, that this would just be shocking and clearly wrong and clearly clearly unloving, but yet God is love and he commands them to do this. So now basically everybody wants to say how no parent should ever do this to their son. No parent should ever kill their child. That's just unloving. So is this a bad law? Well, I think we can just start out with uh, you know foundation foundational principle that everything God does is good and everything that God commands is is a good command. Because um, you know there's a lot of you know so called Christians today that would you know just try to find any way possible to talk their way out of this passage. You know, perhaps they say, well, this is the you know, this is the God of the Old Testament. You know, we we now we're under the New Testament. All those laws are gone. Well, you know, the the fact is that God doesn't change, and the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. And so if it was a God that gave that law to the people of Israel at that time, it you know, whatever it says about his character, that has not changed. So we can't just say that, you know, this law is, is out of date and is, and is gone and, and doesn't need to be remembered anymore. I mean— you say, yeah, we have to start with the foundation that everything that God does and declares is good, of course. And yet, this passage still does strike our modern ears as being pretty harsh and, and possibly even cruel. It's one of those things we would chalk up to, oh, this is a hard passage. And it's a hard passage if you actually believe that God is good, that God loves his people, and that everything that God says is good. You know, when you put all those things together and then superimpose, here's what I think about the world, it is a hard passage to deal with. So that's why I'm excited we're getting to talk about it. And I think we just forget how, you know, God is love, and he took the nation of of Judah from millions of people down to 4,600 people out of it because of his wrath and because of his judgment. And that was loving. And it can be really hard because we don't want to take the biblical definition of love. We want to take the modern definition of love. We want to make an emotional love. We want to make a a love that isn't isn't the love described in Scripture. And that's where we get into the conflict, I think, as we go, God is love. And should we be loving? Yes, we should be loving. So what does it mean? Well, it means we do things that – we don't just say, I'm going to be loving and do everything that our society says love is, because that's contrary to loving. In Leviticus 19.17, you know, where Jesus Christ says that this is, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, you know, he's 
the context of that is rebuke your neighbor. Well, we don't think to rebuke somebody as loving, but God says to rebuke somebody as loving. So when you take a passage like this and hit a passage like this, you have to step back and say, God is love, and he says to do this. So how is this loving to do this? And if you approach it from the right view, it stops being a hard passage. And I'm not saying that it, it can be difficult for us to wrap our minds around because we've thought so wrongly about things. But there's this part of it where, I mean, like you're talking about with love, is we've turned love into this, this singular, intense thing. Like you said, that's an emotion, and that's and it doesn't have any thought to it. And we've made it to where you love one person to the exclusion of every other person. I mean, if I walked outside and my son was killing someone, what would I do? I love my son so much I couldn't harm my son. I could never. What if my son's killing my other son? What if my son's attacking my wife? What if my son's attacking a straight? You know what I mean? We, and, but, and we have this idea that if you did anything to your son, it would mean you don't love your son. And it's like, nope, that's not true. That's just not true, and we know that, but we don't want to think about that. But if you don't think about that, the problem is is you start to not understand the gospel. You start not to understand what God's doing in the world. I mean, you lose a lot. Right, because if it's not proper for a parent to put their child to death under any circumstances, how about if your child is perfectly righteous and never sins at all, ever? That's what God the Father did to God the Son. And so if you start to say it's evil, then you have called the gospel evil because you cannot if, – if it's completely wrong to put somebody who's stubborn and rebellious and refuses to be corrected and, and just is a glutton and a drunkard and all these things that are in the passage, if it's wrong to punish them, then how much worse it is that God the Father would put Christ to death. And so you have to start to put these things into context where God's saying there is something more important than just continuing in life. And even when you get to something earthly, we go, well, God's God. Well, you get to something earthly like Abraham and Isaac too, right? I mean, you've, right. Got to, I mean, you've got this part of where an earthly father is told to take his son up on a mountain and put him to death. And up until the point where he stops him is where he's willing to commit the act and the son is willing to allow him. I mean, and you just, you really, you have to, look, I mean, you either have to take your Bible and just throw it down and go, no, this and there are people who are there, right? There are people who are already there. That go, God is just evil. Right. And so you, I mean, so when you come to a verse like this, you really have to ask yourself, what do you believe? Where, are you, where do you actually fall? Is the word of God the word of God? Or is your heart the word of God? Is society the word of God? Is the fear of man the word? I mean, what do you actually tremble before? And if you tremble before the word of God, then you sit down and you go, okay, let me check my modern sensibilities at the door and let me actually look at what this says. Right, and you know, it's like the the verse that says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Because, you know, all of us, you know, even if we grow up in church, we have so much, you know, baggage and so much of our views of what right and wrong is is impacted by the society we, we grow up in. And and so the fact that we, something seems wrong to us doesn't mean that it is wrong or that it even seemed wrong to everyone in history. Um, you know, there, we just have this you know, automatic bias that will now we're more advanced, we're better, you know, society is, pre, you know, pretty much right in its opinions on things. But, you know, we need to be transformed by the word of God, by the one who actually defines what right and wrong is. And I mean, that even ties to, you know, there is a sense that cultures are becoming more civilized, but that's because of the effect of the word of God, not the other way around. It's not that man is somehow getting better. Man hasn't changed. The heart of man is still desperately wicked. 
none of those things have changed. It's that the gospel has gone forth and is transforming these things and putting new constraints on men. And so now we take that and we misapply it. So we look at a passage like this and say, this is just wrong. Well, no, it's because the fragrance of the gospel hasn't affected things enough for people to go, no, this is actually this is actually right. God is good and just and kind. So you've been talking about the relationship between God the Father and God the Son as being necessary for understanding this passage. And I think it's necessary for understanding pretty much any passage that talks about fatherhood in, in Scripture. Because God, again, God is not the God who looks down from heaven and says, oh, there's fathers and sons there. I can use this. There's this, this relationship, and therefore I'm going to describe myself to people in this way. So, you know, it's it's the relationship between God the Father and God the Son is the real fatherhood. It's the real sonship. And what you have on earth are reflections of that. They're the shadows. They're the things that are pictures of something else. So whenever you see the Bible talking about human fathers and human sons, you have to say, you have to ask the question, how is this thing a picture of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son in the Trinity? And so it seems to me when you read this passage that the place you need to go is is Genesis 3. Because this is Genesis 3, right? God said, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Evil. He told Adam, do not eat from it. Adam goes and eats from it. So God, Adam's father, puts him to death. I mean, that's that's Genesis 3. This is Genesis 3. And so when we hear that, most people don't immediately connect it to Genesis 3. But, you know, it says in Luke 3, 38, after giving the whole genealogy of Christ, it ends with the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So Adam's the son of God. And he sins, and he rebels against God, not like this long pattern of rebellion and this long pattern of chastisement and all these things that that we have to do before we implement this. Adam sins once, and God puts him to death. And this is this passage is why every person who goes to hell goes to hell. Every person who goes to hell goes to hell because God is their father, and they rebel against him. He chastens him with the world, right? I mean, even sin, every time that the drunkard wakes up with a hangover, that's the father chastening the son. And they refuse to listen, and they refuse to listen, and that's why they go to hell. So because they're disowned by God. They're disowned by God. They're disinherited by God. They're put out of his house, right? Yep. Because heaven and earth become one. There's a new heaven and the new earth. That's the household of God, and they get put out of the household. That's hell. And so when you look at this passage and think of this passage, we just need to recognize when we say this is just evil, we're saying everything God's doing in the world, it's all evil. But it's not because that's how serious sin is. That's how serious rebellion is. That's God isn't looking at these things, and we look at them, and we think it's cute. And God looks at it and says, this is horrific. I mean, but there are people who are there. There are people who make polite-sounding arguments like, oh, hell's not eternal. I don't believe a, that there would, that it would be just for a God to put somebody under eternal punishment for a temporal set of sins. You know, and this is the sort of thing that you can hear in a mainline church, and everybody will sit there and quietly nod their heads. And and that's basically denying Genesis 3. And that's that's denying then if you're thinking that way, 
that God can't do that, then you read this passage and you can't reconcile it with how God is love and he could give this commandment because it is because he is love that he can give this commandment because when you think about it, he puts all these pictures in the world so we can understand what's needed to be saved. And this is one of the pictures that he put in the world so we can understand what needs to be saved. If we continue to rebel, even when God chastises us for sin, even when there's real consequences for sin, and everybody knows there's real consequences for sin, nobody can step back and say, God doesn't chasten for sin. And then you turn around and you go, oh, but God can't do anything to me for it. Well, he already warned you. Every time there's a consequence for sin, it's a warning. Every time you see someone else get judged, every time you see someone else go through something difficult, every I mean, there is this constant reminder that the cost of sin is death. Even when you see just catastrophe in the world, when you see, you know, I mean, I mean, mm-hmm. we have a we were talking to the kids the other night at prayer, and we were talking about there's a young as a family we have who has a young daughter and she's been sick lately, and I was like, I said, do you make sure you don't miss what's being said to you? It's not. God is, when you see this young girl being sick and she has this chronic illness, God's telling you, you can't be, a, you can't count on having your whole life. God is, sin is in the world. Sin is going to lead to death. God is showing you this. And he doesn't do this to every single person, but he does it so you can see it. So you won't go, oh, I had no idea because God chastens. And so we go, the wages of sin is death. And we go, yes. And then we turn around and God says, so when you sin with rebellion, you should be put to death. And people, the broad church goes, no, <laughs> no, that can't be right. God's loving. Right. Well, that's that's what it means that the wages of sin are death. I mean, this is just a, a visual picture of it. And think of the blessing of God and the mercy of God that if a city did this, everybody in there would go, the wages of sin is death. Right. Instead, we go, no, that's God's, God's love. You'd said earlier that you, know, you read the genealogy and about Adam being the son of God. And, I mean, there are people who kind of hear that and they kind of go, but we're not all sons of God. And so, I mean, it's important to understand that there's, there's more than one, that in one sense, everyone is the son of God. And like you said, he disowns those who are sent to hell. But Scripture also talks about this in other ways as well. So in John 1, 12 through 13, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so, I mean, and there's this part of it where in salvation we become greater than Adam. I mean, Adam was the son of God, but he was still a fleshly son, and he was still, and so, and so his fall was a was a fall. He was he was already fleshly, and he fell in a carnal way. Those who is talking about in John 1, 12 through 13, this is those who are born of God and are made heavenly sons of God, which is something even greater than Adam, Adam attained. And so the metaphor makes sense in both cases because in the end, it's talking about sons of God in different senses. But, it's talking, but it, again, it reinforces the idea of what it's talking about. Those who were in Adam, those who remain in Adam, they suffer the consequence of Adam, and they are disowned, and they are put to death. And those who become heavenly sons, they will never die. And and the contrast there, when you talk about disowning, well, really, when you look throughout the New Testament, it's talking about becoming children of God. The ultimate cash value of that, pun intended, is that you get an inheritance. You get to inherit eternal life. Right. That's the that's the way that it's termed. Right. And when we go back and we consider the Deuteronomy passage about it, there's a sense that in Adam— because we're children of Adam, therefore God is our father. Not our father, father, but our great, 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 you know, et cetera, father. 
But in Adam's fall, he was put to death, but so were we. So we look at this passage and go, it's cruel that God chastened him and did all these things. But we all died with Adam. Right. And so he already disowned us without those things. And yes, we see the consequences of it. Yes, we we still have physical chastisement in this world. We still have the picture. We have all these things. But there's also a sense that that he did it when Adam sinned and Adam rebelled, we still reap the consequences of that rebellion. And so when you t- say this law is just evil, it's like, well, do you understand all of creation at all? I mean, this is what happened. This is how serious the fall was. This is how important it was in the world that that God put Adam to death and said, you're not my son. That doesn't mean he didn't save him later, but under all his descendants fell with Adam. And that idea is reflected in the Ten Commandments. I mean that in the end, I mean, and it's one of the, it's interesting because the ten, the Fifth Commandment kind of falls into, sometimes it's kind of viewed as sort of a, a fluffy commandment, and sometimes it's viewed as a really, I mean, it depends on, it depends on how you think about things as how you view the Fifth Commandment. Because some of the other ones, you know, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, and it's like, honor your mother and your father, and it's like, no, this is a serious offense. And you can see other places in the law where it talks about if a, if a child strikes his father, that was considered to be a capital offense, right? I mean, and so when you look at Deuteronomy 5.16, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may be well with you in the land which the Lord your God has given you. And when you look at this passage that we've read, this law about the son being put to death, and you look at the gospel, you understand the fifth commandment is no joke. The fifth commandment is about, I mean, people kind of want to say, oh, this is this commandment you know, is about man no this commandment is very much about god right and so this commandment like you look at the parallel between there's only one god and the fifth commandment and then you look at the parallel between what god did with adam in the deuteronomy passage about taking your son out and stoning him and you see i mean there's real parallels there right the one is this heavenly transaction that happens this the spiritual thing that happens and then he gives a physical outlaying of it and then he says, you know, there is one Lord, your God. And and then he gives you a physical outworking of it, which is you honor your father and mother. And so God is giving these laws so that we can understand who he is and how he works in the world. So the laws are really serious because they show who he is. And you can't have the honor your father and mother on one hand and then go, but there should no be, be no consequences for not honoring your father and mother. No, it's a serious commandment. It's It's – like all of them, adultery, yes, there's fornication. There's all kinds of sin that are worthy of death. But God also says, do not commit adultery. Lying's an abomination before God, but he says, do not commit perjury. And then he turns around and says, honor your father and mother. This isn't because it's some minor secondary thing. It's because this is a crucial thing that you have to do. Because it's directly tied to your understanding of who God is in the world and God appointing authorities in the world. Exodus twenty one fifteen is that just the parallel passage for Deuteronomy? Mm-hmm. Okay, no, that was the okay. one you referenced about striking. The oh, okay, oh, okay. Did you reference it? Yeah, yeah the striking the father was a capital offense. Oh, okay. Sorry. <coughs> and so, we want to do this one, or do you want me to do it? Or? I'm trying to figure out what what we're doing. Seriousness of the gospel. Well, fifth commandment, and then it's like, yeah, 
the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into other darkness. He's calling them sons there too. And that, that's the Jews. Yeah. Actually. Yep. Yep. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. <laughs> no, I understand. I know I if you read Matthew read 8, 1 through 9, you would know. I just thought I'd throw that in there since you weren't reading Matthew 8, 1 through 9. So fifth commandment, Old Testament, fine. But the, the principles carry through to the New Testament. For example, Matthew 8, starting in verse 10. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what he's talking about here, I mean, this is, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven and, and people from the east and west. That's He's basically saying there's going to be Gentiles in heaven. And when he talks about sons of the kingdom, he's using this term sons here. These are the people who would have said, oh, Abraham's our father, Isaac's our father, Jacob's our father. Those sons of the kingdom, the Jews, they are not going to be. The ones who Jesus said, Satan is your father. The particular ones, yeah. And so, I mean, this idea of God putting sons to death for violating the fifth commandment, guess what? That's that's 70 AD. That's the destruction of Jerusalem. That's... That's the Jewish wars. I mean, that's that's what was happening there. Is that he was taking them and he was he was rejecting them and he was disinheriting them in a very physical way. In a physical way, they were put to death. And so we should just recognize it's not like these are things that are far off. These are things that we've seen God do in history, and He's just commanding us to do the same thing. So if we go back to the passage in Deuteronomy twenty one eighteen, right? It starts, if a man has a stubborn, rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother. And so the point of this is, again, God creates, God, God can judge things differently than man. He doesn't delegate all his authority to man. He delegates a very restricted subset of authority to man. And so when he delegates that authority, he can look at a baby that gets angry at his mother and go, this is worthy of damnation. And he can judge that, and that's fine. But that's not true. He does not delegate that to parents. What he delegates to parents is you have to have a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey. And it's very clear as we walk through the rest of it is this is a pattern of it. This isn't that they wouldn't obey once. This is that there's a constant pattern of disobedience that – that they try to deal with and they won't deal with, and the son continues to rebel and continues to rebel, potentially being in another city. And so you have all these things that are restricting what a parent can do to be a picture of what God does. God doesn't have the same restrictions. He doesn't have the same narrowness, which is why he can condemn the vast majority of people to hell, right? Many is the that lead, Many are those who go on the path of destruction. There's few who go on the path of life. And so – he can do that, but he doesn't delegate all that to man. But what he delegates to man is still a picture of what he does. And this is true with almost all the laws, right? I mean, anything where somebody gets put to death, God just doesn't say, you look into his eyes and you know that he's guilty, so you put him to death. No, there has to be evidence. There has to be proof. There have to be witnesses. There has to be – and so – and just like in this case, this is – like you said, this isn't something where the parents just go, you know what? I'm just fed up with this kid. Let's go out and just convince everybody to stone him to death. Right, and you look at it, right, and, and 
in the New Testament, it says fornication. No, no fornicator will inherit the kingdom of God. It's worthy of eternal damnation, right? But God also says if you fornicate that you marry the girl. And if the father says, I won't let you marry her, you still pay a bride price for her. And so what he delegated to man was a, was a very small subset of what he judges and how he judges. And that's true here, too. And so there's all these restrictions. It doesn't mean God can't judge differently. But, man, it has to be. You have to have worked on it. You have to have say, can say and testify that this child is stubborn. I've tried to get him to rebel or to stop rebelling for a long time. So when we hear when we hear stubborn and rebellious son, I mean, we're I think we we jump to you know child, you know even child. It doesn't say child, but it, even, if, even if it did, that has a similar thing where we hear child and we think you know a young kid, you know you know under eighteen, under thirteen, whatever, you know. But but of course, child is your your children are always your children, even when they're adults. And as we go through this, as we hear that it's someone who could be possibly in a different city, or it's someone that you that you're the elders of a city, and all the people are testifying with you that you can't constrain his gluttony and drunkenness. It becomes evident that this just would not work for someone who is you know a little kid who you can just hold down and make him you know, not do these particular, some of these particular things. Right. And the word, the, the word there that's translated son, it really means offspring. It means that they were are begotten of you is really the picture. It's not the age and that child means that. So it's not wrong to use the word child, but when we think of child, we tend to go to not the next generation. We go to a, a young child and, and, you know, that's, that's not, where God has delegated authority, I would argue, is that a young child, you don't take him to the elders of the city. That would be ridiculous. Why would the elders do that? And why would the people in the city be able to testify that he was a drunkard? If he's a drunkard and he's he's a young man in your house and he's a drunkard, that's not their, the child's problem alone. It is also your problem. And so the elders of the city, if you said, my, my, my 15-year-old's drunk all the time, I think the elders of the city would say, maybe you're the one that should get stoned. Right. And so you're clearly talking about somebody that has the, their own potential freedom of movement, freedom of action, their own resources, other things in order to, to, to be bringing them to the elders where it even makes sense. And I think that's – I mean there's a part of it where a lot of people would go, how on earth could you have any expectation for someone who is older than 15, 16, 17, 18 years old to obey their father or their mother? And And – this should I mean, as we said earlier, checking your modern sensibilities at the door is the idea of honoring your parents doesn't end whenever. It's not even honoring. It's, it's obey. obeying. Well, I mean, and, and honor, and, and we should even right. say the word honor is tied very tightly to obedience, right? I mean, so there's this part of we've even divorced honor from obedience. But, but this is very explicit, like you said. The idea of someone who has left home having the need to obey his father and his mother, we've lost the concept of that. And we should recognize that it's it's not to our credit. We have this idea that we're modern and we're sophisticated and we've put away – I mean, and this is, this, is, this is one of the things that's worth really pointing out here is it's really easy to look back at the Old Testament and think of it as this archaic thing, to think of it as, you know, I mean, that, it, that we're so much more sophisticated. And it's, I remember even having the conversation with you a while back, we were talking about the word sophisticated means to play at being wise. And that – that's a really good definition of it when we think about ourselves that way, is that we play at being wiser than God. 
And there's this part of where this verse, it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't make any bones about it. This is someone who should be obeying his father and his mother, and that should be something that should be expected of people. And we've lost and, that. And, and when you think about the context in which God's giving this law, it's always helpful for me to think, remember just what's happened is God has taken them out of Egypt, where they were all slaves. They're not really a people. They don't have any kind of code of laws or or anything like that. He's taken them out. He has them in the wilderness right before they go to the promised land. And he's saying, all right, here's how you're going to build a culture. Here's how you're going to build a society. You're going to start it from the ground up. You're not coming in with any bad heritage in in a legal code sense that you have to get over. It's you get to you, you get to create a society from new, like that, like whatever your greatest science fiction fantasy is. This is what was happening, right? And in that kind of scenario, would you think God would create anything less than the perfect law for these people? And I mean, when we hear, you know. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or of his mother, I mean, it doesn't mean that you should be telling your your you know thirty year old son you should have breakfast at seven thirty this morning. I expect you to be down. I bet, make sure you brush your teeth before because you already failed as a parent if you're having to do that. Right. So the point here isn't that that you should be commanding them in details that you would command a child. They have their own household, and as a householder, they have authority. They could be an elder in a church, they, right? But there are certain things where you, you see— they're not an elder in a church. That's, that's <laughs> well, not in this case, <laughs> right, but you right. know what I mean. But <laughs> but you see the example that Christ uses, right? And it's the example of Corbin, where the, an older man that's wealthy, his, his mother is, you know, obviously older and, you know, needs help, and he goes, oh, everything's been dedicated to God. Well, she has every right to command him to say, you take care of me. And if he won't do that, he is stubborn and rebellious, and she has every right to take him to the elders of the city. And instead, they go, and Jesus Christ is saying, instead you go, hey, but, but the temple's going to get his money, so we're going to let him just be rebellious towards his mother. And so that would be more of the example of where the obedience would take place, that uh, a parent should not be ordering their child who's, you know, an older child that has his own household every detail. That's not the point. But they still have real authority that they can exercise. And this specific example in the New Testament is related to caring for an elder parent. And, you know, that we could probably unpack that for a whole episode. You know, how sure. far should children obey their – how far do children have to obey their parents when they're adults? You know, what are the limits on that of their having their own household? You know the law, the church, you know marriage, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but you know, the, but the basic point is the Bible never says that obedience expires at a certain age. And this verse, and, and if you say it does, you start to have real problems with this verse because now, if you say that when you're 18 or when you leave home that you know obedience to your parents expires, well, now you're saying that you are stoning kid like little kids. I mean, that's in this verse. So that yeah, those are your two options. And this verse just, I mean, whatever our sensibilities about it are, this verse just comes to the pre, to to us with the presupposition that, on the one hand, children of whatever age have some responsibility to obey their parents, and parents of whatever age their children are have some responsibility to exercise authority over their children. And I mean, in this, and even like we said, I think Corbin's a really good example because, in the end, what Christ was, in a way, he was saying. 
Israel had failed to understand this because not only— You reject the commandments of God, right, right. is what he says right. for the traditions of men. Because in, in two ways, not only did parents fail to train their children, and not only had the children failed to honor their parents, but the people of the city had failed to require children to obey their parents. Because like you said, they used the excuse of, we're going to give the money to the temple, and so they said, we'll allow you to dishonor your parents. And so, I mean, you can even see there's – because there's multiple tension points within this passage of not just the parents who have the issue with the child, but also that the people people in the city have to look at it and go, that you're right. The we thing have real evidence. Right. The thing that you're dema- asking him to do is reasonable. If the parents came and said he won't brush his t- – I told him to brush his teeth. It's, I mean, they're going to laugh. go his bed. His breath is really bad. We want <laughs> right. him out of the city. But they're going to – I mean, they're the going to – I mean – they're going to laugh at them the same way you would laugh at someone who came in with some ridiculous claim. You would look at them and go, stop being a fool. And so, I mean, it's really important to look at all. But, I mean, in the end, Jesus is saying the whole culture had become fools. The whole culture had had rejected his laws, and this is the purpose of his law. And it is important to recognize another, like, you know, you hear a lot of situations where, like, a wife is beaten by her husband. And if this was implemented— the father of that son is supposed to go and say, you stop. You stop beating your wife. That is not acceptable. As my son, you are not allowed to do that. And if you then took that to the city when they refused to do it, that would be right. And so I don't want to make it this these things that are just like really clearly your responsibility to your parents. The parents actually have responsibility to constrain serious sin in the life of their children. Well, if you think about that example, does that kind of move us into the next clause in here about when they've chastened him? Right. You know, it, is it just speaking to that son who's beating his wife or is it is it something more than that? Or is it a, is it a certain kind of speaking? I mean, what's involved in this chastening here? <laughs> I thought, you you like <laughs> I thought you were going to answer it. I thought you were going to answer it. Instead, you like punt. I, I mean, no, I, I set up is what I did. <laughs> I mean, I think in some ways it's chastening as far as they're able. You know, you know the it, you know parents hack you know can give their children the rod if their child is rebellious, stubborn, will not obey their voice, a drunkard, a glutton. What you know, it doesn't seem possible for that to happen. You know, if they were able to, they should have done that. But it doesn't seem like that's going to be possible in this type of scenario. But I think the point is that they've done everything that they can, and so now they're taking it to an authority who can do something more. And it seems to me that part of that chastening is to go, we're going to take you to another authority. You know, submit to the rod on your back because you are a fool, or we're going to take you to the elders of the city, right? So the chastening, which ties directly to what you're saying, Joshua, is it is the level, and if you have some – financial relationship with them you cut that off right i mean there's lots right. of that different, you've disinherited them right, right. i mean that you've, you've you've already disinherited them you're not supporting them anymore you're you know you do whatever you can them. you're not enabling them would be the modern term to use that that's a good term and so you know that chastening it's more than just words it's you exercising all the authority that you can elsewhere in the law you have the magistrates being given you know the 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 rule saying you can't beat someone with more than 40 you know, lashes. So it would be hard to see where uh, just elders of the city would not say, well, how about you give him 40 lashes before we stone him? So, you know, you would think that that would be, you know, a mandatory step in the process that like you have the rod, you he's stronger than you, you know, he's not stronger than the men of the city. So they can, they can facilitate the use of the rod. And I'm not even sure that 
I mean, there's a point where it's like the men of the city shouldn't grab him and hold him down where the, well, the father beats him, right? I mean, the men of the city should just go, you better submit to this chastening or we're going to stone you, right? It doesn't, I don't think it requires the physical, but like you said, if the first thing that I would do is if I was in the men, the elders of that city is to go, well, they think you need the rod. You better go submit to the rod or the next step's going to be taken. But again, this is when you look at what God does, God doesn't need to do that because he judges perfectly. But to know whether it's the guilt of the father and the mother or the guilt of the child, there has to be evidence that the elders of the city should consider. Have they actually chastened him? Have they taken the steps? Even like what Joshua said, have you beaten him 40 times with a rod? You know, Have you done those things before you do the next step? Because all these things are not setting up the mother and father as an independent authority. They're actually bringing in another authority. And that other authority has real responsibility to say, was the obedience, you know, go murder this person. No, I won't. You're a rebellious son, right? Obviously, right. the elders of the city should go, no, he shouldn't have done that. And also chastening, did, is this really a problem that the parents didn't do what they were supposed to do? And now they're reaping the consequences and they don't like the consequences. Well, in those cases, the son shouldn't be put to death. And I think, I mean, when you raise, like, the ridiculous idea of going, did the parents command him to commit murder? Like, the reason you're raising that ridiculous idea is because that's how people read these passages. People read these passages and go, so what you're saying is, is if the father told his son to go murder someone and the son wouldn't do it, then the father can come in and say, put my son to death. It says it right there. And then they have to do it. Right. It says they bring to the elders and the elders go, well, the father said we have to do it. Let's get some stones. Let's get stones. You know what I mean? And, and by the way, it's an eight-year-old. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And because in the end, that's, people read these as if and you look at our and, – and then you look at our current culture that they're defending – where all sorts of evil, I mean, you know, where we have buildings where you can go in and kill a baby. You know what I mean? And you and they go, this is barbaric. And you go, yeah, yeah, this is and this I mean, is messed up, right? I mean, and let's be, I mean, and we just need to understand, we look at America and go, oh, we're nice sanitized. I mean, I know somebody whose mother prostituted them when they were a 12-year-old. Right. I mean, let's be serious. This happens in America. This isn't like something that's far off. This happens around us. And so we play these games and go, yeah, parents, it's ridiculous. Well, actually, it's not that ridiculous. This is how evil it is. But that doesn't mean that authorities, that the elders of the city should join in that evil. They, there's no requirement. There's no enslavement that, that the, the parents are doing evil, so we have to help them do evil. That is not the point of the passage at all. The point of the passage is to be a picture of the just judgment of God. And then you get to the next section where it gives some more context for what happens after after moving through the authority of the parents. Then the parents have responsibility to take it and escalate it to the next authority. Then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city, to the gate of the city. And there's several things going on there. It's, it's again, when, when you talk about the gate of the city and the elders of the city, basically that would be the court system. That would be our equivalent of a court system. Mm -hmm. um, the gates are where judgment happens. That's where you would bring trials that, and things in judgment would be made at that location. So they're really saying you have to put the son on trial. Um, and then the next, the rest of the passage that follows from that is a, under the assumption that he's guilty. But 
It doesn't have to be that way. This could end with the elders saying, hey, you know what? Something else, you're, you're wrong about it. You're, you're actually, you didn't do everything you need to do. You need to go chasing him again, or you missed your opportunity to chase him, and now we just have to deal with this. And, but it doesn't have to all end with stoning because the elders do have authority to exercise in this case. The parents have the responsibility to bring that child, that son, to the authorities in order for them to judge the matter. And it is his city because the authorities that are over him are the ones that are over the city that he's in, whether it's the same city as his parents or not. That's not the the standard of whose authority he is under is based on where he lives and not where on the parents live. And if you're looking for the details of the text for why we keep talking about this being an adult son or close to an adult son, that's one of the cases we'd say, you know, it appears like he is old enough to be considered a citizen of a city. So, you know, you you just don't talk about an eight-year-old in this kind of way. Right. And then not only do they, are they not just to take the testimony, right, because they're judging the matter. So they don't just take the testimony of the, the father and mother. They have to go, he's a glutton and a drunkard, and meaning that these are sins that are not capital offense sins. There's, gluttons are not put to death by man. You know, a drunkard's not to be put to death by man. But they're going that there's a real manifestation in this person's life that other people can see so they can go, yes, he's a rebel. It's credible, right? You've got two witnesses, the mother and the father, but it's, it's, you've got another witness because by two or three witnesses and the mother and father being related, and there's another witness. Look at his behavior. Look at what we see in him. Look at the, the way he acts. Yeah, this is somebody who acts like a rebellious son. And, and we're not we're not spending the time to go back and cover the other verses that talk about the like fundamental principles of justice. The son can bring witnesses. You know, what I mean, sure. the son can bring his own witnesses. And there's times where the they have one testimony, and the testimony of someone else puts what they said into an entirely different context. And so it's not like you just listen to the parents, then you go, "Well, you you have some witnesses, but we have to listen to the parents." No, I mean, it's it's just like. Our modern legal system is based in many ways on these exact same principles, and we shouldn't. We're not saying it should work. The only way it shouldn't work any differently is the cases where we've become unjust and where we've, den- you know, where we've denied due process of law. But there would be real due process here. And there, we are just bringing a hermeneutical assumption to the law, though, that we're talking about case law. Right. And when you talk about case law, then you have to say, hey, this is an example that has multiple applications. And the, the gluttony and drunkenness here is a really good hallmark for that. This, we would not interpret this as that's the only kinds of stubborn rebellion that bring you before the They've elders. They've caught him to, as a thief 20 times. But glut- he might never be a glutton or a drunkard, but everybody knows he's a thief. That would still qualify. But the the reason that they make really good examples is because gluttony and drunkenness as sins are the sorts of sins that are habitual sins. You you, mm-hmm. you know, thievery is not necessarily a habitual Unless sin. Unless you did it twenty times. Unless you did it ten, twenty times, yeah. But you know, but but to be called a glutton and a drunkard just kind of by definition means you've got a pattern of lack of self-control in specific areas. So it's a good reason to think, okay, this is not talking about somebody who's just done one sin and the parents got mad at him and then said, all right, fine, we're taking you to the, the authorities. This is somebody who the report at least is that he's got patterns of behavior. His parents are trying to deal with those patterns. They're not able to deal with them. Therefore, we go to the elders. And I do think in case law, it's very specifically picking glutton and drunkard for another reason, which is these are not 
capital offenses. They're not even yep. necessarily offenses that that typically the elders of the city would even deal with. I mean, if they were a drunkard so that they went and ran their ox into somebody and they you know, got gored or something like that, then the elders might get involved. But if they're a drunkard, they're a drunkard. And so it's bringing bringing things that that the elders wouldn't deal with, you know, where the judges wouldn't deal with it to, into their scope to deal with. But that's because they're not being punished for that. And I think the, the passage is being very clear. They're not being punished because they're a drunkard and a glutton. They're being punished because they wouldn't obey the voice of their father and mother. And even just the way that it puts the the testimony of the parents, it's leading with this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. For example, is kind of what the the way that he I read that. He won't obey our voice, right? Yep. It's explicit. He won't obey our voice. He's a glutton and a drunkard. You know, that's the last thing on the list. It's leading with stubborn and rebellious. I mean, then there's also another element of due process here as well, which is that all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. Um, and that's something that, I mean, I, you know, again, that's a big topic as well, but it's something that, you know, modern sensibilities would say that's barbaric, but actually you have something that is a real limit, a real check and balance on, you know, you know wacko parents plus a wacko elders of the city. You still are not going to be able to, you know, get, you know, stone someone who is uh, a, you know, an upstanding, innocent citizen, because if, because it's, you know, and it even says all the men of his city. It's not even, you know, enough men of the city to stone it. But it's something where you have to get, you know, all, you know, all of them. I mean, you would assume that, you know, it's not one person can veto everything. But basically, effectively, the entire city has to go along with this and say, yes, we agree that this, that the elders have judged justly. And so we're going to participate and actually participate in, um, you know, one by one. But, you know, all going, coming together and, and killing him by throwing stones at him. You know, it's very different from a firing squad, an electric chair, all these things. It's something where the whole community has to participate and endorse what's being done. The, the execution is democratic. And you know. it's democratic. And also the witnesses have to throw the first stones, which means the people throwing the first stones are the parents in this case. That they have to pick up the stones and throw it. They're the ones that brought the accusation. And so, right, it's it's... But I, yeah, we have this jury system where it's yeah, twelve people with a, a jury of your peers that they all have to one hundred percent agree. I mean, that's all to try to give the same check that this had, where the whole city has to come out and stone them, all the men of the city. It's it's a parallel idea that we've we've taken God's system and tried to put it into something that would do something similar. I mean, this kind of goes. I mean, you said this is another check on there, but what this also does kind of goes back to Jonathan was earlier saying. If you look at what God was doing is he was bringing the people out and he was giving them laws and he was telling them how to build their culture. And one of the things that God's law does is it, it brings us to the inescapable point that other people's sins affect us. You know what I mean? It's, it, mm-hmm. There's a part of it where in American culture where one of our key aspects is individualism. We have this part where and, – and even and that individualism is also individualism like in the family. And, and it's a lot of times I'll see people like, you know, if you – I'm sure you all have next door and different things like that. And you'll see people post and there's a set of people and they're very American in their thinking. When somebody says so-and-so was doing this and they'll go mind your own business. And, and, and there are places sometimes where people should. <laughs> should absolutely mind their own business. But sometimes there are group of people who've made that into just a fundamental principle of the world is we should just all mind our own business. You know, it, there, and there's this libertarian idea of, you know, it's only if they're directly harming you, can you really get involved or directly harming. So, 
And there's this part of it where God's law says the way we harm one another is more complicated than we think. You know, God's saying that the fabric, he said, you're going to build a culture around the idea that children need to honor their parents, which means you care what parents tell their children to do. You care about these things. And there's a part of it where, I mean, you care because at a certain point, you can be a person standing there with a stone having to kill someone because something because a child wouldn't listen to their parents. And remember, the, the commandment was so that you go in this land and you prosper in it for a long time. You'll exist in the land because of this. And so he's giving these commandments, I mean, in a very contextual way of this is how you build a sustainable society. And, and you know, as we kind of look at what's happened to our society, we go, oh, that's evil. But I think we should also look and go, actually, the things that we've adopted that are so contrary to this, they're far more evil. For instance, the mother and father, the child won't obey them, and so they should take them out to the elders, all these checks and balances, and be stoned. But we go, you should take a child that goes into a public school, and the teacher should be able to convince them to castrate themselves, and they should never even speak to the parent. What we've done is we've exalted rebellion as the highest virtue, while this is saying Rebellion is a serious sin that destroys society. It ends cultures. And we've kind of done exactly the opposite is where we are as a nation. And we've even and we've even sometimes done it just in the sense of we go, well, look at the evils that some parents do. There are some parents that are bad, and we'll go, parents shouldn't have so much authority. Let's give it to the government. And, you know, we have the historical examples of governments killing millions of people. There's no mother and father who's ever killed millions of people. They just don't have the capacity. And you just I mean just as an aside there, but like murders are usually about 1% of all people that are killed. Wars are the 99%. The number of people that died in Ukraine completely through our sending weapons over there and stuff completely dwarfs any people any murders that happen in the United States. They're on different scales. But yet we want to go, oh, it's just horrible. We have to just turn it over to the government to let the government solve a problem. It, it doesn't solve the problem. It is the problem. And so in the end, and so the answer is, is we exalt the government and at the same time we promote rebellion. You know, because, we're, because, they're, because you cannot do that without encouraging the rebellion against the parents. Because in the end you're saying God really didn't give this authority, authority to them. God did not give parents authority that even the government must recognize. And here's what happens when you don't constrain rebellion. We can watch, right? All of a sudden, Obergefell gets passed, and all of a sudden, two homosexuals can marry. So they go, okay, we've, we've achieved our objectives. We're done. No. They go, well, now we have to do this. Now we have to do this. Let's start to push for plural marriages. Let's start to push for, for MAP, you know, minor attracted persons. Let's, let's start to – because when you don't stop rebellion – Rebellion wants more rebellion. That's why we've got all these these weird things with all the gender and stuff going on. Because God says, you know, put the evil out from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear, and the rebellion will stop. We go, we should exalt rebellion, which means there will be no end of rebellion. So the people who say this law is cruel, they should recognize the cruelty of our system because it's on a whole different scale. Because there's no end to the destruction that we're reaping, it's, or that we're sowing. It's such an. <laughs> there's no end to the. There's no. There's no end to the destruction that we're sowing. 
And it's such an interesting end to this passage, and all Israel so here in fear. And you realize how how domestic and local this whole scenario is that we've been walking through. It's like some parents take their one son to the gate of a city, and then what happens there, all the nation's going to hear about. And and they would, right? And they would. And so they would. Everyone in that city was there, so they would have all known and, about it. And, and so, so – Hey, maybe this helps us a little bit with we look at this and we think, wow, this is really shocking. And the text is even saying, yeah, this is supposed to be a little bit right. shocking. Everybody who hears about this is going to be a little bit shocked by this. And that's the way it's supposed to work. Right. And so if your reaction is, oh, this is a little bit shocking, I'm okay if you keep a little bit of that. And, you know, you you look at it, you know, how many millions of uh, you know, rebellious sons are there in the United States. Well, it's not you'd be putting them all to death because they're. If you did one, they hear, they fear, and they don't follow in that same way because they don't want to die. And so, you know, so that I mean, that's it's saying that that the evil is going to be put away from you, and it's going to constrain the other the evil in the hearts of the other sons in the nation. It's. I mean, you look at we just think we're so wise. We won't make any penalty for adultery, and then. You know, what the estimates are 30% of wives or husbands cheat on them and commit adultery. How much destruction does that do? But we're wise. No, actually, we're sophisticated. With their victimless crimes. Right. I mean, we Just would, the children and the wives we, destroyed. We would, Nobody else. We would look at these things and say, oh, you know, being rebellious to your parents as an adult, you know, being a glutton, being a drunkard in a time where there's no motor vehicles. These are all victimless crimes. Why is this a capital offense? Right. And yet God drives it all the way to this is supposed to have an effect on the entire nation. And we're in a we're in a nation where where we're seeing the effects of not caring about rebellion. And, and we should just recognize, right, because we'd all in churches all the time, people would go, oh, that person's practicing witchcraft. That's horrible. We can't have them in the church. But then you have rebellious teenagers in the church and nobody says anything about it. They let them remain yeah, you know, remain as members of the church. But here's what God says in First Samuel fifteen twenty three: For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. This was related to Saul, but the point is still the same. There's a reason why he went to the witch of Endor, because he was in rebellion to God, and he can't tell the difference. They're all rebellion. Witchcraft saying that witches can control these powers that are above them, Rebellion is the idea that you can control powers that are above you, and all of it is a lot more evil than we give it credit for. But we reap it as a society. We reap the destruction, but yet we go, this isn't a bad sin. And in the churches we go, oh, yeah, yeah, they're just going through their teenage years. Instead of going, no, this is a sign that they are in rebellion to God is why they're in rebellion to their parents. They're in rebellion to God is why they're acting the way that they are. And they need to be confronted with it, and they need to see where they stand with God. A capital offense isn't just so people go, oh, that's terrible. It's so that people go, this is what God does, only he does it more, and he does it with finer judgment, and he doesn't require the same standard that he gives to man. And and people are supposed to see this, and instead we go, oh, witchcraft's horrible, but rebellion, that's just normal. I remember – 11, 12 years ago when our church went through the book of Deuteronomy and we preached on this passage. And I remember it being really how impactful it was and how even shaken I was at the end of the message. And at the end of our each service, we have a time of additional teaching. And I remember I stood up and one of the things that I, 
I remember just I remember just I, I was on the verge of almost in tears for just kind of going, could you imagine ever having to go through something like this? If you had ever had to go through a stoning like this, you would be changed forever. If you were in the mall and you saw some child rebelling against his parents and the parents doing nothing, you would walk over and you would say, discipline your child. You would say, discipline them because you would understand the causal connection between that parent's unwillingness to deal with their child and what you potentially had to do that one day. You would you would fundamentally understand it. And the truth is, is I was even wrong because the answer is, is you wouldn't have to experience it. If you have faith, you read God's word, this is the point of this law. The point of the law is not that anyone ever has to do this. It's that the people who have faith hear it and go, that's how important this is. They understand it ties to the gospel. They understand it ties to the culture. They understand that sin is that serious. And then they act as if this will be the consequence. There will, if we don't do this, something worse will happen. And we're sitting here watching worse things happen, and we're going, are we sure that God's ways are really better? Yes, God's ways are really better. And it really ties to your faith. Do you actually believe God? Because if you read this and you go, I still don't know, you really need to say, do I have faith? Because faith is where this happens. And you, Jonathan, said before about you know, chastening that you, know, you had to stop enabling them. We have to recognize when we turn our back on rebellion, when we close our eyes to it, when we pretend like it doesn't exist, that is enabling. Enabling isn't just that you actively do something. Enabling is that you passively fail to do the things that you should be doing. Right. And I think there's a lack of faith in the church to see rebellion as serious as it is. There's a lack of faith in the church to see how, you know, God says, put it out from among you. Let Israel see and fear. Well, that's how you kill the leaven of sin. If instead you go, well, we, we, no parent should ever do that to their child then all of a sudden all you're doing is it's like you're giving it moisture and warmth so that it, the leaven grows faster. And I think the church does that a lot where it's giving it to, to cause the sin to expand rather than actually trying to kill it. And we're supposed to be about the business of killing sin. I had the thought earlier when we said, no, you know, you're not going to tell some 35 year old they have to brush their teeth. And then I've read articles recently about how many children are living at home at the age of 35. And there is a very good chance that there are people listening who are parents who've had to tell their 35-year-old to brush their teeth. You know what I mean? I mean, this, I mean, we've gotten to the point of absolute, something that we would think is absolutely ridiculous. It's happened in our culture. Something that's, that's far more ridiculous than the, even the way people torture this passage that we would go that that could happen. That's become commonplace. And I think you look at it and you go, the parents who's sitting back and their son won't do what he's supposed to do. He won't get a job. He won't do anything. He sits in the basement, which is very common now, sitting around playing his video games, watching his pornography, smoking his, his marijuana. And the parents keep going, what can we do? What can we do? What can we do? But we're loving our son. And God says, no, you're not. You hate your son. And, the, and the, the society needs to get its head around that and recognize the level of hatred there is for that son to not chasten him. And yet the church embraces it and leads it and says, oh, yeah, that, that, that's that mean God of the Old Testament as we, as we sow destruction. One of the consequences of this is that the children in our culture are desperate for constraint. Mm -hmm. And I mean 
I mean, you you go in the school and you. I remember like when I was in school, you know. I mean, you when you went. I think so. When I was in kindergarten, they still spanked. But I think by the time I got to first or second grade, I don't remember anybody getting a spanking. My kindergarten teacher had to give me a spanking, and she cried through the whole thing. <laughs> totally ruined the effect. <laughs> she, she she apologized. Oh, to our me. teachers would brag about it. <laughs> she, she she apologized to me afterwards. I mean, like I mean, but I think Pennsylvania ended spanking way before North Carolina did. Right. And so, but so. I mean, I, and I remember, you know, like if, if if a class got unruly, if a class was really rebellious, they would go, you know, do you want us? Do you want me to go get the principal? And we were terrified. I mean, I don't know what we thought the principal was going to do, <laughs> but if the principal came, but I mean, now, I mean, it's like you hear, I'm like, do you want me to get the principal? You know, do you want me to get the superintendent? Do you want me to bring the governor in here? The governor will parachute. I mean, now they have to bring a police officer in with a gun, and a lot of times they even know that the police officer is not going to do anything because no one will actually stand up to them. So when I was in school, they had a – I mean, it shifted that it used to – when I started by about fourth or fifth grade, they stopped that teachers could spank. But then there was a vice principal that that was pretty much his whole job. <laughs> so you knew if you got sent to his office, there was only one reason to get sent to his office. Right. But they kept, like, going, well, spanking's really, really bad. It's really cruel. It's not – but at the same time, we know it's necessary. And then over time – it's the leaven. It just keeps increasing, and you keep going. Rebellion's not that bad. Rebellion's not that bad. And even the idea of a, some. See, I think there are a lot of people there who goes, "I would never let somebody else spank my child." <laughs> but this passage is, this passage is why people were at a point where they would trust someone else to do that because they had a record. You know, I mean, there's this part of it where if you go, if a child isn't constrained, this is going to happen to them, and everybody else understands that. You have this expectation that other people are going to care for other people's children right. you you ha- and so there's this part of it now we look even at people- when nobody embraced this they still embrace right. that level of the concept right and so i mean it i mean and it wasn't that long ago because i mean i said i said they stopped spanking but i remember when i was in seventh or eighth grade the principal still spanked some of the kids and you know they were still you know maybe once a year some kid would get sent to the principal's office and have to get a spanking but it, that was pretty much on its way out. But did all the school hear about it? Oh, they did. Oh, if it ever happened. I mean, it was a big deal that a kid got. <laughs> it still wasn't a big deal. <laughs> it's yeah, like another get, kid got spanked. This guy has a, unbelievable. We're not going to get rid of that vice principal yet. Another <laughs> child got spanked. He still has work to do. And I think one of the the reasons that that people look at this kind of passage and go, oh, I can never do that to my child, is they – they're forgetting their stewardship responsibility. They act like they own the person, and they don't. They've been given a stewardship responsibility to fulfill with God. And, yes, there's a natural affection. And yes, God puts all those things to protect children, and those are good things. But at the same time, our life is not supposed to be about our children. Our life is supposed to be about God. And one of the reasons that people, I don't think, can wrap their head around the idea of you know, there could be a situation where you would be advocating your child being put to death is because they're going, but this is my life. Well, that's not Christianity. They can't imagine loving others as much as they love themselves. You know what I mean? Because there's this part of it where, I mean, when you, I mean, we have right now, I mean, in the news, there's a lot of stuff going on about President Biden and his son. And there's a part of it where you should, I mean, where you're looking at him going, doesn't he understand that he's undermining the legal system? I mean, let's say, I mean, I don't know that the things about Hunter Biden are true, but if they are, if 
if they are true, and Joe Biden is allowing these things to continue. It's pretty much admitted it, so it's kind of hard it, to say. I, I mean, so I mean, him, him, yeah. I mean, him, him, him being someone who who takes drugs, him being so those things are pretty well documented at and this there's point. There's pictures of him in Joe Biden's convertible with two prostitutes, right? I mean, right. that was and on so the news he's, just in the last few days. The president of the United States is is undermining so many things by allowing his son to act in this way. By not, by not at the minimum disowning his son, by not at the, you know what I mean, and until so you look at this, I mean, you can see it. Oh, it's, instead, he disowned his granddaughter, right? And what Who did didn't she rebel? Do? <laughs> exactly, his son is rebellious in every way imaginable. He won't disown him, but he disowns his granddaughter and says, "I only have six grandchildren," which is disowning him, right? Disowning her. And so, I mean, you know, I mean, it's we, so we shouldn't think that these things aren't. They're very connected to what's going on in our society today and what we expect someone in authority to do because we look at him and we would go, I expect you to be willing to love everyone else in the nation enough to treat your son like a person, to treat your son like an adult. And, and, and if you say that love doesn't let you do that, well, then what good is love? And there's a sense in which you're saying what the president is doing or not doing with his son is having an effect on the culture or can have an effect on the culture. Oh, he's having an effect but, on the culture. <laughs> but ultimately, you know, you're not locating the source of the problem with the president. You want to say that the source of the problem is that we are so far away from the word of God as a culture that we've gotten to the point where this is the man that we have in charge. Right. Ever since the 60s, right, like rebel without a cause, right? I mean, that that's where we have been as a culture since the 60s, is that the hero of our culture is the rebel. In this passage is exactly the opposite. And the country's been declining ever since then, right? You could argue that it declined before, but but there's been pretty clear signs of declining since then. And that's just our view, is that rebellion's a good thing. And it's absolutely not. It's, it's a destructive thing. It's, a, it's as the sin of witchcraft. And so people look at Joe Biden and go, why are you picking on Hunter? It's like, really? You, he appears that he's distorted, right? I mean, the distortion of the justice system, it certainly looks like there's evidence of that. The actual crimes that Hunter Biden, there's no question of some of the crimes. Those really aren't debatable anymore. But yet... Joe Biden's like, I love my son. He's a good son. He's done nothing wrong. Didn't he say that? He's done nothing wrong. And, But if you go, I won't punish them under any circumstance. I could never lead my son to be stoned. You can't say Joe Biden's wrong for saying that. But Christians say Joe Biden's wrong for saying that. And I think it's really important for us just to, you know, at the end of that passage, but throughout Deuteronomy when giving the law, God repeats over and over again. That about others hearing and fearing, right? Like Deuteronomy 19, 20 and 21. And those who remain shall hear and fear. And hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. Life shall be for life. Eye for eye. Tooth for tooth. Hand for hand. Foot for foot. And the context here is perjury. But it applies. I mean, the same type language is used a lot of other places. And it says your eye shall not pity. And we think a parent's eye should pity. And the answer is if a parent's eye pities like that, in the end, they don't really care about their child. They don't care about their other children. They don't care about the society around them. The husband doesn't care about his wife. I mean, it's, it's, there's, 
they think they can show pity on the one person without it having this effect that it's pitiless to everybody else. And that's where we are. And going all the way back to our introduction, that that kind of pitying that we're talking about is where our culture has decided to define love. Right. That that would fit. And yes. so we would be much more accepting of that kind of pity that God says you shouldn't entertain. Right, because it will destroy your society. You won't live long in the land. It will destroy your society. And we're watching the destruction of our society, and we hear this verse, and the church apologizes for the verse. That was the God of the Old Testament, or he didn't really mean it, or it was necessary at that point in time, but now we don't need it. Instead of actually looking at it and saying, you know, God's wise. He's like really wise. And we're watching our destruction, and instead we insult God rather than insulting ourselves and saying, maybe we're fools for thinking the way we think. And in case it's not clear, I mean, early on we asked the question, is this a good law? And we're saying unequivocally, yes, this was a good law. And while that law perished with the state of Israel in the sense that it is not a judicial law in our system, so there is no one you can go not to. not supposed to grab you people. Can, and, yeah. You cannot appeal to the – but that law was written well. It was equitable. It handled the issues so that people saw sin. They saw what needed to be done. It compelled them to deal with sin. It compelled them to love their neighbor. It compelled them to love God. It compelled them to understand what love is. And it caused the society to benefit and would lead towards righteousness and towards a blessing to the society. Every part of it was good. There is no part of it that is antiquated, that is horrible, that is evil, that should be done away with. Galatians says, is the law against the promise of God? No, it is not. It could not be. If there could be righteousness and eternal life by a law, it would be by that law. It is a good law. But, I mean, I, that Massachusetts Bay Colony, the settlers there actually put on the code a law very similar to this, that rebellion to your parents was a capital offense. And the interesting thing about it, for I don't know exactly whatever reason, but there's no recorded case of that ever actually being exercised. So either it was the case that it was really effective, just to have it on the books, or they were too timid to actually pull through with it. And let's be honest, that is the nature. It doesn't, I mean, you don't want to just go and create crazy draconian laws. But there is this part of when a strong law is right, people go, you'd just be putting everyone to death. No, you wouldn't. It changes people. It changes the culture. Because people go, we're valuing something, and they can explain what they're valuing, and they can say what it is, and they go, this is why. We're saying it's that important. And when you think about it, parents make a long list of decisions with their children when they're raising them. And a lot of parents go, oh, I'd like to pick my battles, which means what they're really saying is there's a certain level of rebellion that's acceptable, and I'll accept that level of rebellion. And I'm not saying that you punish everything, but I am saying if you had this law in the books and people thought that there's an expectation of, hey, you know, your son's rebellious, you've got a problem, that mindset of how you of what you accept before you go, no, you're in rebellion, that would shift. And that would transform society, that shift. I I mean, it's a small, tiny little transformation, but I remember that Sunday you were talking about when our church was preaching through this passage. Mm -hmm. And I was a 
a new parent at the time. I had very small children, and and I remember at at the the way that particular church, just the geography of the way that church was set up. If you had a child that was disruptive during the service at our at our church, the children are part of the general service. There's not a nursery. There's not Sunday school. If you have a disruptive child, then typically you take them out. In that case, it was the parking lot. There were a lot more men in the parking lot doing small <laughs> corrections with small children that day. And it's it's a tiny little application. Not stoning anyone. Nobody was stoning them. <laughs> but but it's, it was not at all hard to draw the line from, if my son is a 25-year-old and could risk death, what kinds of things can I do with that child while he's a 5-year-old so that we're not even close to that? You know, And it was, who knows how consistent i've been as a parent since then or any of the other fathers but at least at that moment it had the impact of oh i can connect the dots i see where i got to do things now with my toddler so that i don't end up here with a glunt and a drunkard down the road right because when, when people say they're going to pick their battles i mean one battle that they do pick is to make sure their kids don't run out in the traffic because they connect that if the child runs out in the traffic the child dies we don't want that. So maybe we'll let them talk back to us, but we're not going to let them run into traffic. And if you say that, and then this law here, it raises the stakes so that more things fall under that category of this is a matter of actual life and death. And that's what we were talking about, like it being about faith, is it doesn't take much faith to believe that the road is death, right? But it takes more faith to understand that other forms that, and when we t- let's be really clear, when we talk about choosing our battles, what we frequently mean is. In our family, we have things that have, that bother us that mm-hmm. we punish. We're not as worried about what we say is, is certain things that God says are sins don't bother me as much, so I don't punish those things. I don't have as much faith about those things, or they don't offend me personally, so I don't deal with them as strongly. That's frequently what we mean when we say I choose my battles. And we have to be we should be really careful because it's really easy to just effectively perpetuate our own set of sins down to our children. And we're really not giving any regard to whether God says, no, this is death. If if what you mean by I pick my battles is, okay, my son has a whole bunch of sins. I'm going to attack this one until it's done. And then I will redirect my troops and attack this one. You know, if that's what you mean, fight on, brother. We're with you. Triage is fine, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was worth reading this passage from Esther because we can see how far our culture has gone. Because here you have a wicked pagan culture, right? I mean, this is like a a bad culture that, you know, idolatrous, you name it. The king calls Queen Vashti to come to him and she refuses to come. And so here's what it says in Esther 1, 15 through 17. What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to the law? Because she did not obey the commandment of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs. And Mamukan answered before the king and princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who were in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. They saw that if the rebellion of the queen was accepted, that it would completely undermine the whole society. They could see that. And we should understand through the scripture better than they do how accepting rebellion undermines the whole society. But they could see it, and we don't. That's a real problem with the church, a real problem with the church not explaining how bad rebellion is because rebellion is always about rejecting authorities God has put in place. 
Rebellion is evil because it is a fight against God. It was the original sin, and it's the sin that continues, and it destroys, and it brings death. And so, I mean, what part of what you're saying there is that in this culture they understood what, what Christ says is that sin works like leaven, that sin spreads, and it, it grows, and it spreads everywhere. I mean, and you can, you can see this. We've been talking about it with the president of the United States, but, I mean, it's been true. Look at over the last – under Donald Trump's presidency – how many people hated the fact that he had authority and how much rebellion of people who should have done what he told them to do, who had who swore an oath to uphold the Constitution and obey the president of the United States in their office, and they refused to do what he told them to do. And look at how that's – I mean, and you look at where we are today where there's parts of it where we're worried that our government might fracture in certain ways. And I don't know – I don't know how close we are to any of that. I, can't, I mean, but it's really easier for people to say we're very close. There's lots of things that constrain things. But you look at it, and what's really clear is this. The amount of rebellion is going to increase until someone says we are a nation of laws, until, and it needs to be the church. Right. That's what I was going to say. There's only one, one group that has the authority and the ability. And the faith. To, and, and the faith, and that's the church. It's the only one that can go. No, we've we've spent seventy years embracing rebellion, and look what it's got us. Maybe we need to stop. Rebellion is evil, but the church doesn't say that. It doesn't say it inside its own families. In general, obviously there's ex- exceptions, but in general, it's widely accepted in churches. And it was, you know, I remember when I was teaching Sunday school to small children, parents. They wouldn't do anything if a child misbehaved. Yeah. Rebellion was widely accepted. In a conservative Orthodox church, we're not talking about some liberal church. We're talking about a conservative Orthodox church. And you'd say, this is what your child did, and they wouldn't do anything. You were talking, you've said it a couple times about how a, a hard law like this it can have the effect of never actually being pushed mm-hmm. all the way through because of how severe it is, how how heartbreaking it is to think about parents needing to stone their own children. And, and one of the effects, though, is you think that this is on the table, this is a possibility. And so how do we square that with God being love? And you just, well, the the mere fact of the law itself is supposed to drive you to love your children by dealing with their sins and their rebellion when they're tiny things. That's how you love your children. You love your children by thinking, I know what the consequences are. If in, you know, in our modern sense, it's I deal with them or the police will. I deal with them or they're going to be on the news. And and that's effectively what this passage is saying. And we, mm-hmm. but the passage, you know, this passage doesn't draw that connection out. That's our responsibility as Christians. It doesn't say, oh, by the way, this is all because you didn't train your children while they were small. You didn't train them while they were young, so when they were old, they wouldn't depart from it. You know, but drag those other verses in, right? And I think that's really important to recognize that God's not sitting here saying you have to stone your children. He's actually saying. The rod drives foolishness out of the heart of a child. Well, if you don't want to stone your child later, I've given you the techniques. I've told you what to do. And yes, there might be some extreme example where it doesn't work, 
but a lot of times it's because the parents didn't start at the right time. But that doesn't eliminate the child's responsibility I mean, either. If you look at Proverbs as being a good handbook for how to deal with children, it talks about children being stubborn and rebellious, and it gives you other techniques to deal with them that are far short of stoning. Right. And go there. And then if you go there and you deal with that, then you're not having to do this. But the fact that this is here makes all of that of so much greater import. That's why you have a whole bunch of fathers walking around doing little corrections in the parking lot at church when we were pre preaching through this passage. Because I get it. I know this is where things could end up. But if fathers don't think this is just, and fathers are the head of the home, they have the responsibilities. If fathers don't think that these verses are just, then in the end they're going to say, it doesn't really matter if I drive the, use the rod to drive the foolishness out of the heart of my child. Because they connect it. Because if they go and say, this isn't just, then that's just a different level of injustice. And I mean, there's a part of it where, I mean, if you want to think about what do you need to do, yes, you probably do need to evaluate how you're disciplining your children in your home. But honestly, one of the things you need to do is you actually need to realize is you probably love rebellion more than you should. And your children see it. And you You're, watch television shows that are all about rebellion, right? I mean, yep. how did sodomy get brought into our country? Through television shows that were completely contrary to the word of God. They do all these things with transvestites, with all these other people, people pretending to be homosexuals. I mean, they, they took it through sitcoms and bring it into our culture and make it acceptable in our culture. And the church watched those sitcoms and approved of them, recognizing these are things that are against God. But yet they approved of them, they accepted them, they watched them, they got high ratings. And we just go, it doesn't really matter. And the answer is, no, it actually really matters. We need to stop in our society, stop approving of rebellion. The righteous woman builds up her house and the foolish plucketh it down with her hands. I mean, there's a part of it where there's a lot of fathers out there who are plucking their household down by teaching their children to love rebellion, by showing – I mean – if you're, I mean, because they're supposed to go to work and they call in sick, right? Let's yep. just talk about ways of rebellion, right? I mean, that's that's like a picture of rebellion. Yep. You're at home and you tell your child, somebody knocks on the door that you don't want to talk to or calls on the phone and you go, oh, tell them I'm not here. That's rebellion. Right. And your children watch. Whatever your children what, watch whatever law, I mean, there are greater. laws that you can, whether we did an episode on speeding, whenever your kids go, that's a stupid law and you don't have to obey it, right, daddy? And you go, Yep. I mean, this you is sowed the seeds of, seeds of destruction. The church needs to start having the same mindset that God has towards rebellion. As long as we're thinking it's cute, thinking it's funny, thinking it's what people should do, thinking it's natural, instead of thinking this is what the gospel does is it stops you rebelling from God's authority. The rest of it is all about rebelling towards God. So why shouldn't you be stoned? But instead, the church looks at rebellion as a, as a minor thing, and God says, this is worthy of death. We should think more like God. Thanks for joining us. This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching.